And my thought is that uh, why can't we talk about uh, racehorses getting a 10% of any purse that they win? A contract should be imposed upon the owner of the animal to make sure some compensation and rights go to the animal themselves. That's Professor David Favor. He teaches property, international environmental law, wildlife law, and animal law at Michigan State University in the USA. In 1979, he and some other attorneys, active in shaping the emerging field of animal law, set up the Animal Legal Defense Fund, an organization that described their mission as to protect the lives and advance the interests of animals through the legal system. I went to law school in order to deal with environmental issues and came out to teach environmental law and got a teaching position and started to teach environmental law, but then I wrote my first paper on wildlife rights because everybody else was talking about pollution issues and I somehow I ended up in wildlife area. And that got me invited to the first national conference in the United States on animal issues. I was the wildlife person. And from there, I met the people that we formed the Animal Legal Defense Fund the next year. And that opened up the whole world of animal law to me. And I spent uh, some 22 years with that organization. But what was the state of animal welfare under the law before he and his colleagues set up the Animal Legal Defense Fund? There was no recognized term as animal law. Um, It was simply part of tort law or part of criminal law, if anybody ever talked about it at all. It was a criminal law uh, protection for animals has been had been long accepted within the U.S. uh, for 100 years, but um, it just sort of had plateaued at that point. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. A brief history of animal law might be useful to bring us up to speed. Although animal law seems to be a pretty new frontier, its roots stretch back as far as 1700 BC. The Codex of the Babylonian King Hammurabi is considered the oldest corpus of laws relating to animals in the world. It prohibited the excessive use of animals for working purposes, And, although it classified animals as separate from humans, it also classified them as differently from mere things. But then came the ancient Romans. The Roman view of the world produced two fundamental categories, persons and things. Persons had access to the law and property law was written about things. Everything which did not have the status of a person was a thing. Therefore, animals were classified alongside objects. But then again, so were women, children, and slaves. Property law is an institution with four component parts. The persons who hold the rights, the relationships between persons, the objects to which property concepts attach, and sanctions for violation of the rules. Believe it or not, current property law in our own modern times is closer to that of Roman law than that of the Babylonians in that animals are still considered as things. They are still property. Generally speaking, the concept of property is defined legally as a comprehensive collection of legal rights over a thing. 
The standard discussion of property today lists three basic categories of property. Real property, intellectual property, and personal property. Real property is fixed in place, visible for all to see and will last indefinitely, such as a house. Intellectual property is a product of a human mind, perhaps resulting in a physical reality, like a book or maybe even this podcast. Personal property is physical, movable, and has a limited physical existence, like furniture, for example. So where do animals stand? We still want domestic animals, but we know they're not just tables and chairs. The problem with this property status is, in the eyes of the law, if an animal is hurt or killed, the injured party is not the animal herself, but the owner of the animal, and that's to whom property damages can be awarded. This is known as indirect animal protection, and it predates any form of direct protection for animals. I live in Vienna. Here in Austria, for example, an imperial decree dating back from 1846 banned cruelty against animals, but only if it was committed in public and aroused public nuisance. Therefore, the target of protection was not the abused animal themselves, but human society. It was only at the end of the first quarter of the 20th century that the first legal provision to safeguard the animal herself was passed in Austria. In 1925, an administrative law went into effect, which protected animals from being wickedly abused, brutally mistreated, or ruthlessly overworked. Most animal protection legislation from then on was characterized by more ethically motivated provisions, aimed at the protection of the animal as a living creature who is able to experience not only well-being, but also pain, suffering, and distress. But in reality, are the animals really protected? It sounds very good uh, when you read the, the prohibitions on cruelty and the requirements of care. And then you look at the exceptions and you see it doesn't apply to farm animals or scientific research or to all sorts of other things. So it basically was a law at that point and still is for companion animals. This seems to be a common theme in animal welfare legislation. The Austrian Welfare Act, for example, passed in 2005, does not apply to animals who are hunted, who are fished, or animals used for experiments, but nor does it cover any endangered species. A similar Animal Welfare Act was passed in Britain in 2006, but to give you an idea of how many pets there are in the UK, according to the Pet Food Manufacturers Association, the UK pet population in 2018 was estimated at 9 million dogs and 8 million cats. Meanwhile, according to the UK Humane Slaughter Association, approximately 2.6 million cattle, 10 million pigs, 14.5 million sheep, 80 million fish and a staggering 950 million birds are slaughtered for human consumption every year in the UK. Although lab animals do warrant some protection under this act, still more than 3.4 million experiments were carried out on live animals, including mice, rats, 
dogs, cats and primates in 2019, according to the official statistics released by the UK Home Office. Why is it the case that we only extend rights and protections to certain animals, ones whom we have a special relationship with? But even for these relatively few animals that hold such a privileged position in our society, are they really protected? How much protection do companion animals get under this system? If someone harmed a dog, for example, what compensation would the dog be owed, if anything at all? Uh, I mean, that's the problem. A death or harm, you, you might be able to get uh, reimbursement for vet fees if you hurt a dog. Um, but even that's not clear in every state. If, if the vet fees are $2,000 and the dog is worth 200, in some states you couldn't get more than the $200, more than the property value. But in other states you can get the vet cost, reasonable vet fees for trying to fix the animal, uh, to use property language, um, to bring it back to where it was. So yes, this property section is, um, uh, the damage section is definitely the, the biggest unchanged part of the law that should change. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the terms we use to describe our companion animals. It is perhaps unsurprising, stemming from the fact that, at least domestic animals, are traditionally considered property, that we ascribe the term owner to the person who is in charge of them. Language is undoubtedly powerful in shaping how we view the world, a fact that is not lost on many non-binary and trans rights activists. In a world where we are increasingly becoming aware of the importance and the impact of the language we use to refer to others, would it be better for the animals under our care if we shed this identity as owners? Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, certainly thinks so. PETA has previously called for the term pet owner to be changed to guardian or human carer instead. Ingrid would also like to see the term pet abolished. In a 2020 interview with the UK news outlet Metro, she insisted the public must shift its way of thinking towards animals and how we refer to them is the first step to respecting them as equals. Newkirk is quoted as saying, How we say things governs how we think about them, so a tweak in our language when we talk about the animals in our homes is needed. She went on to say, a pet is a commodity, but animals should not be things on shelves or in boxes where people say, I like the look of that one, it matches my curtains or my sense of self. Dana Scott is the founder and editor-in-chief of Dogs Naturally magazine, and she has very different ideas. She wrote in an article in her own magazine in 2012, I am not a pet parent or a guardian. I own my dogs. On the surface it might appear to be a nice gesture to claim that I don't own my dogs, but the fallout from that surprisingly innocuous gesture could be very dangerous for our pets. That subtle slip in language opens the door to animal rights activists. Animal welfare supporters believe in our right to own, use and enjoy animals, but insist on humane standards and treatment for all animals, including proper housing, nutrition, disease prevention and treatment, and humane handling. Animal rights advocates such as PETA 
want to end human exploitation of animals. The goal of animal rights activists is to put an end to companion animals and, ironically, pet parents are helping them accomplish just that. Now, this stark contrast between animal welfare and animal rights might come as a surprise to some, and we will cover it in more detail later in the series. Meanwhile, I asked Professor Favor what his opinion on the word owner was. Right. No, I think I think words have real consequences. Absolutely. And the word owner suggests a level of absolute control that is probably not what we would like to see vis-a-vis animals. And so, you know, I don't mind uh, it, and changing the guardian is, is perfectly fine with me. Again, I'm dealing with the real world, but I don't want to offend people by making too much change too quickly in what the term is. I can just get them to nudge towards the center, you know, then we can nudge them again and, and say, hey, guess what? You're a guardian. You're not an owner. Um, when you look at the, the laws uh, right now, the duty to provide care laws here in the state of Michigan, for example, it's, it's pretty clear you're a guardian. You know, you, you need to take care of that animal in all sorts of dimensions. And uh, you're not an owner who can do whatever they want with their animal. We can call them owners or we can call them guardians or we can call whatever the word is. We can fashion that set of responsibilities of whatever we think is, is appropriate. I mean, that's the beauty of the law is that it's not dependent upon any one thing. It's always open to social debate and change and modification. So is there any middle ground? What kind of nudges are even possible when you're trying to change the views of wider society, particularly when you have such a wide range of passionate people on both sides with often irreconcilable views? The people in the movement have a, a certain abhorrence about the word property, a belief that if you talk about animals and property in the same breath, you're, you've, you're unethical. And um, that's okay, that's their view. Uh, but they are still property, you know, and they can walk around and make any declaration they want, but they're still property. And my view is I want to talk to the people that are part of the legal establishment, not to the animal rights movement. I want to give them a place where they could be comfortable moving conceptually. And I think my idea of living property is the next step. It may not be the ultimate step, but it's the next step for animals in that they still have to have owners to take care of them. We still want domestic animals, but we know they're not just tables and chairs. So how do, how do we separate that? You know, and that my thought is to create this new category, call it living property, because it has some attributes of property, but it's not normal personal property. So now we can talk about having moved them there. What makes sense? How do we talk about their future, their rights, our responsibilities towards that property? This idea of living property is pretty revolutionary, given the conservative nature of the law. But there's still something about the term property that doesn't quite sit well with me. Under living property, would we be able to still buy and sell animals in the same way that we can buy and sell other commodities? 
Well, um, that that's why I want to put them in a separate category because now let's well let's talk about that. You know, do do we want to have that happen or not? And in a couple of states in the United States, they've already outlawed the retail sale of companion animals. So you that's just one aspect of what property is. Property has we like to refer to it as a bundle of sticks, a whole bunch of individual rights and responsibilities. And we can take that sales one out of the bundle and look at it and decide well when. When would it be appropriate for the animal to to be part of that process? Because we also know it takes money to raise animals from being young, and I don't think we ought to expect people to to raise those animals and then give them away.、Uh, so I I don't I think there's a place for sales, but not through the commercial pet process that we now have, perhaps. And this commercial sale of animals, particularly dogs and puppies, is big business. According to NatureWatch.org, in Britain they buy 800,000 puppies and dogs every year to be companion animals and friends. They say about half of these come from caring breeders or from animal shelters, but the rest come from puppy farms, both in the UK and abroad, often Ireland. Puppy farms or puppy mills breed puppies in volume for financial gain. They are often sold through online ads and on the black market. Intensive farming of dogs exposes them to viral, bacterial, parasitic, and genetic disease. Poor hygiene and packed breeding sheds increase dogs' likelihood of pain or premature death after infection. Often, puppies will be sold by inexperienced dealers to unsuspecting buyers before symptoms are apparent. And of course, with these sick puppies, the health issues can last for a lifetime and cost their families a lot of money. Due to the pandemic of the last year, puppy sales increased massively all over the world, as people sought comfort and companionship during the ongoing lockdowns. Bill Lambert, the UK Kennel Club head of health and welfare, issued a statement saying. We do have concerns about those puppies which may have been bought on an impulse, without owners doing their homework, on how or where to get a dog responsibly, or fully realizing a puppy is a new family member for life, not a short-term commodity. So, as a lifetime family member, animals could take on an almost childlike status and could be treated in a manner akin to children. Should a dispute arise within the family, in a divorce between two humans,、uh, what happens to the animals? Hopefully, it's settled between the two parties. But if there's a dispute between the two parties about what to do with the animals, then that's where the property aspect becomes、uh, a, a problem, because historically in the United States, it's just the animal is just property, and so you give it to whoever bought the animal, perhaps, or whatever a property distribution would represent. It's not a lot of money, you know. The animals aren't usually worth a whole lot. It's not like、uh, an antique that might be worth a thousand dollars, but nevertheless, it would be property. Well,、uh, starting with Alaska three years ago, we now have, I think, it's four states who passed new laws that said a judge may take into account the best interest of the animal when making a decision about placement in a divorce. So that moves us a big step closer to childlike status. Because the courts must take into account not the wishes just of the parents, the needs of the child, and then that's what's happening in these cases where they're recognizing that that animal 
It's not who owns it, it's what's best for the animal that the judge should be focusing on. And I think that's a tremendous example of the law accepting the mindset of animals being part of the family. It's also been my observation on a global basis that you can see a transformation within the law that is preceded by the transformation of the treatment of dogs. And that is in lower income countries, dogs tend to be community dogs in which they are not in the household. Most people don't have enough money or to take care of dogs or the resources to take care of dogs, the vaccines and all those other things that make it happen. Uh, and so as community dogs, they, but they still like their dogs. Um, but you then reach a point of economic status, and this is happening right now in China, is where you can suddenly take a dog into your family. You can buy a dog. You have the money and the resources to buy a dog. And the bigger that, that um, center part gets uh, filled with, with companion animals in the home, then they get political status, okay? Because the homeowners actually become the advocate for the dogs. And uh, so I've seen that in a num number of countries and that dogs are the cutting edge for moving forward animal law. But why dogs? Is there something particularly special about these animals? or our relationship with these animals that drives us to fight for them. When we're seeing expansive interest in, in what happens to dogs, uh, that, that bond, there's cat people and dog people, right? I mean, we, we don't want to discourage cat people either. But for some reason, dog people seem to be more outgoing and assertive about trying to do the right thing for their animals. And so it keeps pushing the envelope. And, um, and because they are indeed for millions of people, they are like their children. And they think that they should get children treatment uh, within the law too. I, I haven't seen anybody pushing for getting in admission to elementary school, uh, but that, that may be coming uh, because clearly you can train a dog and it can learn language and all sorts of other things. Um, but I'm not sure the state's gonna pay for it. Uh, so we want more and more to have the law reflect the reality that our families now include four-legged members. So are dogs, or even pets in general, the new kids? Current trends for young people, particularly those labeled as millennials, suggest that they may be. A 2016 article in the Washington Post cited a survey released by a research firm, Mintel. They find that three-quarters of Americans in their 30s have dogs and 51% have cats, while that same cohort are half as likely to get married or be living with a partner than they were 50 years ago. Another study from 2014 by Wakefield Research found that 76% of millennials said they would be more likely to splurge on their pets than on themselves, including expensive treats, or even a custom bed. With such devotion to their animals, I highly doubt that many of these people would consider their pets as personal property. So what is the problem then with giving childlike status to a companion animal, as opposed to living property, which would still be a form of ownership? The reality is the animal can never grow out of that relationship. The child grows up, becomes an adult, and is self-sufficient. 
and the companion animal never becomes self-sufficient. So it's always a dependent uh, upon the, upon the humans. And if you've taken on that relationship, that's then your continuous responsibility. And that responsibility can span many years, perhaps even decades. Quite tragically, most companion animals tend not to live as long as us humans do. But with improving veterinary care and nutrition, dogs and cats particularly are living longer than they used to. Some geriatric pets are even reaching ages into their 20s, which is great news for those who love them. But this fact can be anxiety-inducing too. If we are the sole carer of an animal, what happens to them then if we are to pass away before they do? We know there are protocols in place to ensure children will be looked after if their parents die, but who looks after a dog if the person caring for them dies first? Well, that, that's where there would still be a property thread present because in your will, you, you're going to want to transfer the ownership to somebody. Somebody has to have responsibility. And so your will will provide who gets that. But what's new in the United States, and again, is in my mind, a showing of the reality of living property, and that is that you now can set up trust for companion animals. So when you die, you not only say where it should go, you said, here's a pot of money to set aside for their benefit for the rest of their lives. And that makes them like children. Uh, you set up a trust for your children, you set up a trust for your pets. Aside from how society views companion animals, in his article, Living Property, a new status for animals within the legal system, Professor Favor lists eight rights that animals would have in this category. He writes that as living property, animals have the right, number one, not to be held for or put to prohibited uses, number two, not to be harmed, number three, to be cared for, number four, to have living space, Number five, to be properly owned. Number six, to own property. Number seven, to enter into contracts. And number eight, to file tort claims. You may have been nodding along to numbers one through five, but you may have started to get a little lost, as I was the first time I read his work at number six. Animals under living property have the right to own property themselves? I wondered, does this mean we would have to sign over the rights to that very expensive new bed to Fido himself? Professor Favor goes on to explain. One possible application of this idea arises when contemplating compensation to animals for their labors. An owner does not have to pay an animal for the lawful use of the animal, room and board and quality of life being compensation. But... Anytime that money comes to the owner because of the presence or the efforts of the animal, the animal should have an equitable interest in at least some portion of the money, which the animal helped generate. He uses the example of racehorses to illustrate. Racehorses are maybe an extreme example because they can generate 
huge amounts of money, not just modest hourly stuff. But, but a racehorse earns his keep by making money. And at the moment, all that money goes to the human. And the horse may or may not see it. And if five years from now they need to retire, there's nothing set aside for that horse. And, and my thought is that uh, why can't we talk about racehorses getting a 10% of any purse that they win to be set aside in a trust for their benefit in the long term? The horse doesn't understand that. But nevertheless, we know that it's good to have resources to take care of you as you get older. So then what about number seven, the right to enter into contracts? Well, obviously animals don't have the sophistication to understand even what a contract is per se. But the idea that they should be treated fairly and get get something for their work. I mean, in the family relationship, the mutuality is there, okay? But in other relationships, uh, for example, not just the, the racehorse, but if, if uh, an animal is used, although I, live animals don't seem to be used in entertainment as much as they used to, but to the extent an animal is generating money, then again, I, I would say that a contract should be imposed upon the owner of the animal to make sure some compensation and rights go to the animal themselves. But to, to say that they should be able to enter into a contract is, is another way of saying that they should have attributes and capacities that are different from present-day property. It seems like there have been great leaps forward for companion animals since Professor Favor and the Animal Defense Fund started advocating for animal law. Certainly, the idea of living property could mean a lot of extra protections for animals if it were to be adopted. I asked him how close we are to adopting the idea of living property for companion animals. I, I think dogs are there um, right now. Um, that understand this is a professor's um, a nice phrase that I've put out there. I don't see anybody adopting legislation where they say it's living property. It's just they're doing the things as if the, the animals were already in living property. They're giving them special consideration that they didn't used to get. You know, they're not just personal property. They obviously are something different. And so that, that allows us to move forward without using the word itself. But I think the trust law is now over all 50 states in the United States. The divorce law is probably coming. Next will be the issue of damages. His predictions seem to be pretty accurate. As only a few days ago, after we spoke, the Spanish Parliament passed a new measure that classifies cats, dogs, and other domestic animals as living beings with regards to inheritances or custody disputes related to divorce. The measure gives judges the ability to declare joint custody of pets in divorce hearings, just as they do with children after considering the welfare of the animal. All this is great news for dogs, cats and perhaps racehorses. Who is being left behind in the march of progress? Well, um, there's, there's two big things to think about. Uh, one is industrial food animals. The other is the wildlife area, and that in 50 years, we're gonna know whether or not we actually are gonna be able to save this planet and save all the wildlife that are in the planet. Can we quit harming so many parts of wildlife through, through destruction, through consumption, through all sorts of things? We, we really are decimating the wildlife of the world right now. We know, on an intellectual level, that the animals we consume suffer. Yet many of us who consider ourselves animal lovers still continue to eat meat. We are told, time and time again, how the meat trade is damaging the planet 
and contributing to human problems such as pandemics. Yet, we think nothing of this when we order a burger. This pervasive paradox makes no sense on the surface. Most of us are sensitive, intelligent people. So what are the reasons for such cognitive dissonance when it comes to our personal food choices? As Professor Favor stated, the meat industry is tremendously powerful. The food animal problem is that it's global corporations now. And they have many tricks to ensure we keep buying what they are selling. Is the media that we consume responsible for the food that we consume? Next week, I will speak to Dr. Judith Benz Schwarzberg, a philosopher who studies tradition, language, and culture, and ask the question, is the media brainwashing us? How is it possible that a speaking pigland advertises beef? That concludes our episode for this week. You can learn more about the Animal Legal Defense Fund by visiting aldf.org. If you can afford to, please consider leaving a donation. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about animal law and its future, you might be interested to know that I have a book coming out next month from Egler Publication in the UK, and it's called The Future of Animal Law in which I try to project out into all the different ways law can change. That certainly sounds like one to look out for. Thanks for listening. Today's show was written, researched, narrated, and produced by me, Catherine Cray. Mustafa Al-Nasari was the technical assistant, and Claire Cray is our executive producer. The music was provided by Nature's Eye at Pixabay. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for The Animalistic Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, be kind.